0: Trauma changes the brain and can cause one difficulty in remembering, even the good stuff. Once there was a little girl named Lydia. She was adorable, and everyone mentioned how cute she was when they saw her. She had a happy family with a mom, a dad, and five siblings. Those memories are hard to retrieve for Lydia now. On a bright fall day in Dallas, I met Lydia. The Dallas brimming with art, culture, and businesses, also has historic sites where the world was changed forever, such as Dealey Plaza, where President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Just around the corner from that site is one of Dallas' most recent additions, the Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. The building glimmers with a golden exterior that seems to catch the sunset and hold it in place. Inside, though, is a reminder of one of humanity's darkest moments. The Holocaust is one of those events that makes us question everything. To remember this genocide is to second-guess human nature. Life is full of so many experiences, both good and bad. But something like the Holocaust makes it impossible to not ask how life that includes this kind of suffering can still be worth living. The museum was founded by Holocaust survivors who undoubtedly had these same questions in mind. At its opening ribbon-cutting ceremony, a speaker addressed the crowd with tears. As she struggled to keep her voice level, her listeners realized that she may actually have some answers.
1: I want to tell people that uh, uh, healing, healing is gaining the ability to live after death.
0: Lydia Nimbanshaho was a six-year-old little girl in 1994
1: living in Rwanda. I'm not too sure if I'm going to be able to laugh again, but I want to encourage everybody to have hope uh, in the unknown life after death. Because, you know, there is life after death, and if people can find a safe place to allow themselves, you know, to go through that transition, to heal, uh, to be restored, I truly believe that they will get the ability to be able to fly again Mm -hmm. on their own.
0: Lydia explained that we all experience death. It's not just the physical kind that we think of. She explained that we all get the chance to live after death. We called Lydia after the ceremony to hear more about what she meant. On this episode of Kavah, we talk to one of the bravest people you will ever hear. Liddy was born into a storm brewing between her native people, the Tutsis, and the Hutu people of Rwanda.
1: Um problem between the Tutsi and Hutu um, uh, issues, discrimination, uh, not accepting Tutsi as Rwandans, you know, there are so many conflicts between Tutsis and Hutus, but that has to go back, you know, during the colonization, when colonizers came to our country, you know, um, to take over the country, they had to do anything. Cause uh, in the beginning, we had a very united country. We speak the same language. Mm. We somehow we all look the same. Sometimes you can see myself and another person maybe mm. identified as a hoot. You're not gonna see the difference. But they had to. They had to separate us. Yeah, using our facial. Parts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. land, hate, things like that. So, uh, and you know, they started, you know, separating the country using our uh, ethnicity background. And for us in Rwanda, Tutsis were in leadership. No, not because um, we hated Hutu, but you have to understand the meaning of Tutsi. If you can put that in the in the. Or our own context you can, it means like Tunzi is somebody who who's wealthy i was mm. so and if you talk about who, who to, it's like a uh, few things some somehow to to uh, that's the word to describe like who to like a few things it wasn't about like People uh, hate or whatever. It was about, I would say, like, social classes. Mm. But when they came in, it became a problem of, you know, ethnicity uh, question. Then and how we look, what we have, our position. Then they were like, you know what? They have the, the power. It's, it's a long story. But going back, we are one country speaking the same language. But, you know... Uh, but planting that hatred among Rwandans from colonizers, that's what, like, started building wow. that hatred, you know, step by step until we ended up in genocide, until, like, Hutu ended up heading genocide. Actually, the one that happened in 1994 wasn't the only genocide. You know, it started all the way from 1950s, killing Tutsi until it was a nonstop uh um, killing for about three months during 1994. Otherwise, it started back then, since 1950s killing Tutsis until 1994. And the goal was to eliminate the 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 uh, rest Tutsis. So they were always saying that we only keep few Tutsis in the museum so we can tell people how they look. They used to look like. So that was the goal of uh, the government that was in power in
0: 1994. Lydia was six years old, and around 800,000 of her people were killed in the Rwandan genocide. It happened right before her eyes. Hutu nationalists rose up throughout the country and murdered Tutsis in outrage due to the political conflict that had been growing for almost 50 years. The genocide lasted more than two months before Tutsi military regained control. During these eternal two months, Lydia watched her own mother die.
1: That day, I remember people coming to our house. Some of them were our neighbors, saying that they were coming to search for, um, to search uh, if we're hiding anything, if we're supporting the the army. Oh, uh, right. If we're supporting them, then they came to our house, they left. Then after, they came back to take home mother, I think was uh, like in the afternoon, when they came to to take home mother, we were sitting in the living room, me, my mother, my two younger siblings, four years old, a baby, and my little sister who was two years old, we were praying. Somehow there was nothing to do, my mother was praying, we're all sitting traumatized in the living room, And my older sister and my older brother, they when they saw people coming, they ran to our neighbor's house Uh because at that moment I heard that they were looking for like grown-up kids. Because it was right at the beginning, they were also looking for boys, Uh so they ran to somehow they ran. So when they came to take our mother, you know, there were many people coming, you know, with machetes. Different stuff, and I remember recognizing one of our neighbor, whom we used to play with our kid, with their kids and everything. And they asked our mother to leave. I remember she left the house with her Bible, holding her Bible on her chest. And we had to follow her because the younger kids were crying. Um, somehow the oldest there, you know, they're like, "We want mommy, So we had to follow them. They were chasing us to go but but we kept following. So. Right at, you know, in front of our house, that's where the, our father was laying um, down because they have shot him. And they took our mother as well. They shot her in front of us, asking us to go back in the house. So, likely, they didn't kill any of us, but, you know, that's uh, how, yeah, oh, that's how, so sorry. how they were killed. I'm so sorry. That is
0: incredibly traumatic. Uh, wow, I'm so sorry. Um, so you were in the middle and your older siblings, where were they? You were the they little were ones. They
1: were hiding at our neighbor's house. Okay. And so you're there with the
0: little two siblings, right? hmm Oh my goodness. Uh, that would be
1: three of them. Right. Oh, okay. So what did you do? Yes. So we had our, she she was like um, a babysitter. Uh-huh. And I always praise her because she was on the Hutu side and she stayed with us. Oh, okay. So, yes. And also we had our... Our My mother's sister, she's our auntie. Before the genocide, she came to our house to live there because she was really sick. Oh. And by the time they came to kill our parents, she was in the washroom, and she couldn't stand up. For some reason, she oh. couldn't move. Maybe that was God protecting her, but she stayed there for the whole time when they came in. She couldn't move. And, uh, yeah, so when, uh, right after. So parents were killed, we stayed with our siblings and the babysitter and our aunt who was sick. And uh, yeah, a few days after, you know, uh, the Gisimba orphanage that I talked right at the beginning, uh, the director, Gisimba himself, used to be a friend of our father, a good friend. And I'm not too sure he heard of that. I'm not too sure he communicated with my other brother who was eight years old. What I remember is that one morning... He was taking, my brother who's eight years old, he was taking one by one to the orphanage. This
0: orphanage was a safe haven founded by Peter and Densila Jisimba. Because their own family was of mixed Tutsi Hutu ethnicity, they opened their doors to all children starting in the 1980s. In 1994, their two sons were now running the orphanage, and they found themselves in one of the worst parts of the city. This is what is referred to as the Rwandan Genocide. The mass killing of the Tutsis by the Hutus occurred in 1994. Within hours after the genocide began, the Rwandan capital of Kigali was locked down. It was reported that a thousand or more persons descended upon the orphanage, not to be saved, but so as not to die alone. The people were hidden on the roof and in the basement of the orphanage, Despite attempts to negotiate with the Hutu militias for protection of those at the orphanage, they became the target of indiscriminate slaughter of anyone who is Tutsi, including babies. At that time, Carl Wilkins, an American missionary, was working in Kigali. He chose to stay in Rwanda to help despite the U.S. Embassy's evacuation of U.S. citizens. Wilkins had heard of the orphanage and went to provide assistance with food and water. Wilkins' journey to that orphanage resulted in a miracle. The Hutu militia approached with machetes to continue the slaughter. Because of the mere presence of a white person, however, the militia stopped its attack. Wilkins contacted various organizations, including the UN and the interim government of Rwanda, who transported the people to safety. Carl Wilkins' presence at the orphanage saved hundreds of lives. Lydia's was one of them. Yeah,
1: we we went to the orphanage. Uh, you know, I was six years old. We went there. Uh, the entire war. We were there. We had to move to another uh, place during the orphanage, you know, uh, trying to protect us because many times they wanted to come to kill us. If you heard my my, my, uh, speech at Dallas, I shared about that a little bit, how uh, there was one time they were about to kill us completely. In the orphanage, there are at least 400 people hiding there. Wow. And imagine a time a huge orphanage. It was small, but, you know, but because the orphanage uh, uh, director, we say, he seen, but has the heart. And I have to remind people that he's a Hutu guy. He's a Hutu guy but who chose to be an outsider saving people. Mm. And every time they try to come as you like, kill me first. Mm. Kill me first before you put anybody here. Mm. So from that orphanage, you know, different people played a role to save us, including Mr. Kurt Wilkins, Gisimba for sure. Then uh, during the genocide, we had to um, move to another place called SOS. Uh It was like another another orphanage that was placed in Rwanda. And that place, uh, they have an amazing story too. They wanted to come to kill everybody there. They asked them to separate. Hutus and Tutsis and all the kids, everybody there refused and they killed everybody. Oh my God. So we had to go live there, church as well. We went to different places, you know, all in the city of Kigali, but that's how we we miraculously survived. Wow. So the orphanages, what were they, who were
0: they run by? So one
1: of the official ones that I received. That was run by Gisimba. Gisimba Damasi. He's he's still alive. Okay. It was you know it was the orphanage that was started by his father. Okay. And when he passed away, he inherited the orphanage and he took care of it. He had some of the kids he was taking care of. And when the genocide started, he received other people.
0: The orphanage kept Lydia safe, but life would never be the same for her and her siblings. Are you able to see your siblings at all? Yeah. You mean during the genocide? Um, when you're in the orphanage, are you able, like uh-huh. once you get placed there, do you, are you able to be in contact with your sibling?
1: Uh, I would admit that my life in, the, you know, there is, we lived there during the genocide and after the genocide, but somehow the Simba orphanage like, felt like home. Oh, wow. Uh, there is, you know, I think like it's all um, impacted by who he is, his value, because he is a loving man, accepting everybody, him and uh, his wife as well. They're so accepting. They're so loving. Even during the war, yeah, we would see each other because we had to be in. if We were all young kids and there were, you know, some uh, grown-up people trying to take care of every everybody there during that moment it's like you see each other here and there but you're not connected as a family mm. so it's like you're there but everybody's trying to survive on their own but i remember my older sister you know she was required to check on our younger siblings so mm. you know automatically you know she was 10 years old Marie-Cleys, she took the of the mother, so she had to go check how they are, things like that. But we were not connected as a family. We had to uh be adapted to the new environment and act like other kids who have no families. Wow.
0: Wow. Do you remember how that felt
1: the Gistimba or- orphanage? Um I other than the time of the war, of course, the time of the war is traumatizing because even the, the location of the orphanage is the, it was the same topic. It's like close to many killing um, centers. Mm. So it's like the orphanage is like right in the middle and it's surrounded with many killing sessions wow. or centers. So. It's like, I'm not even sure how he survived. And all the time they were trying to come in because they knew that he was hiding many tootsies. So those three months, it's like, you know, I think it was maybe almost three months because we have to move to another orphanage when they were trying, you know, to, to save us. But all the time we were there, it's a traumatic moment. Right, Day and night, you hear hearing, you know... um shootings, people being killed, some people uh, uh, being brought to the orphanage because we had this um, nurse at the orphanage and they would bring some people to take care of them and you see blood, you see at some point some people were killed in front of us so it was you know and somehow you become numb, it's like it feels right. like maybe you're sleeping, you not want to wake up because you are a kid you don't right. understand what's going on so it was a very right after the genocide that's maybe positive memories that i can remember gisimba orphanage you know doing different activities for kids it's Many volunteers from um uh around the world coming to help you know kids heal from trauma we're doing activities and we felt like home you know the moment i spent there i believe was from 1994 to 1996 i think i always tell people that's the only place that i felt like home after losing my parents because wow. maybe you're living with people that are sharing the same pain you're sharing the same path and it feels like you know what everybody can understand you can see you as their own it was the most loving place that i was able to live in after losing my parent.
0: Thank you for listening to the first part of Lydia's story. On the next episode of Kava, we will continue to hear about the far-reaching effects of genocide on her family and on her country. Lydia requested that we play this song, which is a prayer for Rwanda. We join her in praying for healing. Listening to this episode of Kavah the Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you will subscribe, download, and share this on your social media pages and with your family and friends. If you find yourself in a desperate place, it is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who've gone before you and shared their stories. They have exemplified the meaning of Kavah, learning to wait during difficult times to find an eventual positive outcome. I can't express my gratitude for my head writer, Rebecca Gray, and audio engineer, Meredith Douglas. I would not be able to do this without you. For more information, please visit Kavalthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.